0: Welcome to episode 27 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. Today we're going to continue our examination of the history of France, how that history affected France's Jewish communities, and will lead to the ever popular subject of anti-Semitism in France, which I would argue has also evolved over time just as France itself has evolved. And I apologize for the long delay between the last episode and this one. But I've been struggling with a sort of metaphorical writer's block. You know, I don't do these from a script. And I've been arguing with myself about which is more important. Completeness, detail, anecdotes, personalization, etc., etc. And I just decided not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And to advance as far as I could with... The process that we started two episodes ago. So if you'll recall, we talked about two dynasties of kings. First, the Merovingians and then the Carolingians. And we sort of dropped the question of dynasties as we moved into the 11th century, the Norman conquest of England, the beginning of the Crusades etc., etc., all of which, obviously, France played a very important role in. Now, technically, neither the Merovingians nor the Carolingians were kings of France. They were kings over territorial units that included parts of what is France today, but specifically Charlemagne, arguably the greatest of the Carolingians, who founded the Holy Roman Empire, as his sons and grandsons split up his territorial holdings, this engendered wars among them. And there was finally a Treaty of Verdun in the year 843 that established the Kingdom of the West Franks, a sort of middle kingdom that included Much of what today is Alsace and Lorraine and also Provence and Lombardy in northern Italy. And there was an eastern kingdom that eventually became Germany. The middle territory here... Was the ever shifting border between what would evolve into modern France and what would evolve into modern Germany. And this was the source of many conflicts over at least a thousand years. The Capetian dynasty who were the male-line descendants of Hugh Capet, included the first rulers to adopt the title of King of France for the first time used by Philip II, who reigned as king from 1180 to 1223. The descendants of Hugh Capet, or at least the male-line descendants, ruled continuously from 987 until 1792 and again from 1814 to 1848. The branches of the dynasty that ruled after 1328, however, are generally given the more specific branch names of the Valois until 1589 and the Bourbons from 1589 onwards. Now, how and why was Hugh Capet chosen to be the first king in a long dynasty that lasted almost a thousand years? First factor is that the last surviving Carolingian was a vassal of the German emperor, and the French nobility and the French church preferred one of their own. As king of France, Hugh was recognized by all the feudal lords as their suzerain, but they were actually more powerful than he was and could, if necessary, defy him with impunity. He controlled a very small area called the Ile de France, the island of France, which is the area immediately surrounding Paris. And it was far smaller than the domain of any of the great feudal lords, the Dukes of Normandy or Burgundy, for example, the Duke of Aquitaine, the Counts of Flanders, Anjou, Champagne, Brittany, or Toulouse. And it may indeed have been for this very reason that Hugh was chosen to be king. He seemed less likely to be a threat to the other nobles than any of the better endowed lords with much greater lands. And he had a very central, compact location that was easy to govern and advantageously located. On the surface, at least, the first two centuries of Capetian rule in France were much less eventful than the contemporary history of several of their great vassals, people who, in theory, paid homage to them, the Dukes of Normandy, who were busy conquering England and whose vassals were establishing a great state in Sicily, the Dukes of Burgundy, whose relatives were taking over the throne in Portugal, or the Duke of Lower Lorraine, who became the first Latin king of Jerusalem. The Capetian kings, by contrast, stayed at home made good their authority within their own small domain, and bit by bit added a little neighboring territory to it. By the time of Louis Seventh, in the middle of the 12th century, faraway vassals in the south of France and elsewhere, recognizing the king's presence, prestige, and authority, were appealing to him more and more often to settle local disputes. So his duty to maintain peace throughout the realm had become more than a theoretical right. You will quickly learn that my warning to you that this was complicated was not a vain warning. The most important single factor in the development of Capetian France was the relationship of the kings with their most powerful vassals, the Dukes of Normandy. By the middle of the 11th century, which is sort of where we left off in the first episode, the Dukes had centralized the administration of their own duchy, and conquered England, became king of England, and he and his successors were still vassals of the Capetians for Normandy. But they became so much more powerful than their overlords that they did not hesitate to conduct regular warfare against them. Norman power grew even greater during the early 12th century when an English queen married another great vassal of the French king, the Count of Anjou. In the person of their son, King Henry II, England was united with the French fiefs of Normandy, Anjou, Maine, and Touraine in an Angevin empire. Angevin being the adjective for Anjou and not having anything to do with Angina. And that wasn't all. King Louis VII of France had married Eleanor, the charming heiress of Aquitaine, a great duchy in the southwest of France. When he divorced her, Eleanor lost no time in marrying the Angevin king, Henri, Henry II, and adding Aquitaine to his already substantial French holdings. When he became king of England in 1154, he was also the ruler of more than half of France. In fact, if you look at a map of contemporary France, pretty much the entire western half was, at this point, in English hands. This Angevin threat was the greatest danger faced by the Capetian monarchy, and it was their most signal achievement that they overcame it. The first round in their victorious struggle was the achievement of Philip II, who quadrupled the size of the French royal domain. And maps at this point in history changed very, very quickly. The first round in the struggle against England, Philip II pitted Henry II's rebellious sons against him. And when Henry died, he was seriously threatened by Henry's oldest son, Richard the Lionhearted. During Richard's captivity in Austria at the very end of the 12th century, Philip plotted against him with Richard's younger brother, John. Philip even married a Danish princess with the idea of using the Danish fleet against England and making himself heir to the Danish claims to the English throne. When John succeeded Richard in 1199, he found the French King Philip in strong support of a rival claimant to the English throne, the young Arthur of Brittany. Through legal use of his position as the feudal suzerain, Philip managed to ruin John. Philip declared all his fiefs forfeit and planned to conquer them with young Arthur's supporters. When John murdered Arthur in 1203, he played right into Philip's hands. He lost all his supporters on the continent and in 1204 had to surrender Normandy, Brittany, Anjou, Maine, and Touraine to Philip Augustus. Only Aquitaine was left to the English who had been expelled from all of France north of the Loire. In 1214, Philip Augustus and his German ally, Frederick II, defeated John and his allies at the famous Battle of Bouvines. Unable to win back their former French possessions, the English confirmed this territorial settlement by treaty in 1259. John's great losses were added to the French royal domain and were of enormous importance to the French crown. The kings now had possession of the efficiently run Duchy of Normandy, which they could use as a model for the rest of France. The next step in the Capetians' consolidation of their own power was fighting a crusade against a group of Christians who believed in the Albigensian heresy. They were called the Cathars. They were centered in the town of Albi in the southwest of France that belonged to the Count of Toulouse. The Pope called for a crusade against these heretics. Northern French nobles were staking out their claims to the lands of southern France or southern French nobles who had embraced the heresy. So finally, King Philip sponsored an expedition that was led by his son, Louis the Eighth. A special clerical court called the Inquisition was first set up to extirpate this heresy long before the famous Spanish Inquisition attacked Jews and other so-called heretics in Spain. Louis VIII and then his son Louis IX, who ruled from 1226 to 1270, carried on the campaign, destroyed several of the Albigensian strongholds, and burned hundreds of their elite leaders so they succeeded in driving the heresy underground ultimately it was agreed that the lands of toulouse would come by marriage to the brother of the king of france when the last count of toulouse died and that happened in 1249. new advances in royal power came with louis the ninth who was in many ways the greatest of all the medieval kings Deeply pious, almost monastic in his personal life, he carried his own high standards over into his role as king. He wore simple clothes, gave charity to beggars, washed the feet of lepers, built hospitals, and created in Paris the beautiful Saint-Chapelle, which anybody who visits Paris really should make a point of seeing, as a jewel box of glowing stained glass to hold Christ's crown of thorns. The church made him a saint in 1297, less than 30 years after his death. Louis IX's grandson, Philippe IV, also known in French as Philippe le Bel, which means Philip the Handsome, um, was a larger-than-life character who had a huge impact on the history of France, the history of the papacy, and the history of Jews, in various parts of France. And we'll take a close look at him. I must warn you in advance that I have this weird sort of personal connection to Philippe Le Bel, which I will tell you about shortly. Philippe Bel started a feud with the Pope, largely over his desire to use the church's money to pay for his war with the English. Pope Boniface VIII protested, leading to a major feud, This state of affairs culminated in the unbridled declaration of papal supremacy, a papal bull called Unum Sanctum, issued in November of 1302. In that decree, Pope Boniface VIII decreed that it is necessary to salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff, and went on to elaborate that the only way to heaven was through the Roman Church and its duly appointed officials. Philippe Lebel took this as a personal insult and responded by saying, Your venerable conceitedness may know that we are nobody's vassal in temporal matters. In 1303, following that response, Pope Boniface fired the following bull that would excommunicate the king of France and put an interdiction over all of France. Before this was finalized, Italian allies of the French king broke into the papal residence in Rome and beat. Pope Boniface VIII so badly that he died shortly thereafter. His successor took the name of Pope Benedict XI. He absolved King Philip IV and his subjects of their actions against his predecessor, although the culprits who actually assaulted Boniface were excommunicated and ordered to appear before a pontifical tribunal. However, Benedict XI died within eight months of being elected to the papacy. And after 11 months, a Frenchman who was a close personal friend of King Philippe le Bel was elected as pope and took the name Pope Clement V. The election of Clement V led to the so-called Babylonian captivity of the popes because the popes moved to eventually Avignon in southern France and stayed there for almost the entire 14th century. All those popes were French, and for the first few years of this so-called captivity, they actually lived in a small town called Carpentras, which is about 15 or 20 miles east of Avignon, but a much smaller city. And Clement V found that it was too small and wanted to move to a bigger city, had his eyes on Avignon, and he simply bought Avignon, and joined it to the papal fief of Comtat Venessant, in which he had been living. Now, Avignon is really right next door to the Comtat. And today, when people think about the Comtat Venessant, it's as if it always included Avignon, although at the very beginning it didn't. It was a papal state surrounded by French territory, and it evolved into what today is the département of the Vaucluse, where I lived and worked as part of my internship for the French National School of Administration. So when the papacy bought Avignon, it needed to construct a proper palace for the popes, as well as ramparts and strong city walls, and make Avignon a fortified and truly independent place. Although... All the popes who ruled there did so in close connivance with French kings. They were not technically in France. They were on papal territory. And the nearest part of France was directly across the river. That famous bridge of Avignon that everybody danced on for centuries connected Villeneuve les Avignon, where I actually lived, to the city of Avignon, where the popes lived. However, Philippe le Bel had a big castle on the French side of the river, and This castle was surrounded by fairly distant guard towers. And by a series of incredible coincidences, when I did my internship in Avignon, I lived in a guard tower that was one of the outer towers of Philippe le Bel, And it was amazing to live in a 14th century stone building where there was basically one room on each floor. The ground floor had a living room, kitchen, and a nice backyard. Next floor up was a big guest room and a guest bathroom. Top floor was my bedroom, my bathroom, and a terrace from which you could see clearly all that was going on across the river in Avignon. You could watch the walls, you could know what was going on. It made perfect sense geographically for this to be one of the guard towers of this jealous and power-hungry French king who succeeded in eliminating the Knights Templar from France and collecting all sorts of, not only their money, but also the money of all the Jews in the region and the agents of Italian bankers like the Medicis. All the debts owed to the Jews and Italians were simply collected by royal agents and the money was kept by Philippe Bel to finance his wars. However, he didn't have jurisdiction over Avignon or the Comtat Venessin, which had four Jewish communities called the Four Quihilotes, the Four Holy Congregations, in Carpentras, Cavaillon, Lille-sur-la-Sauge, and Avignon itself. And to this day, the oldest synagogue in France that's still in use is a synagogue in Carpentras that was built in the 14th century. And the history of the Jews in the Comtat is totally different from anywhere else in France. We'll go into that in some detail during our next episode. And then we'll take up French history again, moving beyond the so-called Babylonian captivity and into the 15th, 16th and later centuries, including the French Revolution. Thank you for your attention. I look forward to chatting with you again soon.